All right, well, hey, this is Ben Burr. We are here for the fourth episode of Last Known Position. This is a podcast that is a special project from Blue Ribbon Coalition, and this is where we invite guests from search and rescue volunteer programs and talk about rescues that have happened, most of the time with motorized users or other outdoor recreation users, and use these survival stories as a backdrop to discuss some of the things we can learn and do better when we're out recreating in the outdoors to be safe and to make sure we don't have events that are catastrophically bad. And this is our fourth episode. In our first two episodes, we invited folks from the Utah County Search and Rescue. This podcast is funded by the Utah OHV program. We have a grant to produce this podcast. We also have supplemented that grant with grants from Ski-Doo and from the International Snowmobile Association. So for this episode, we decided to focus specifically on winter recreation. It is now December. We are starting to get snow in the mountains and we do have a great forecast of more snow coming. And so I invited today to be on the show with me. We have Santiago Gonzalez, who is a helicopter pilot with Intermountain Healthcare's Life Flight Program. And he's been involved in several search and rescue uh, missions as the helicopter pilot in the sky, helping with those. And I also invited Michael Davis, who is the president, executive director? Uh, of, the, the public lands director. Public lands director. Association. Yes. The Utah Snowmobile Association. Yep. So he's on the ground with all our snowmobilers here in the state. And everybody's getting anxious to get their new sleds out and get up in the snow. But when they do that, they need to do it safely and responsibly. Just last weekend, we had a horrible incident up near the Tetons in Idaho. Uh, two young kids, I think, died in an avalanche uh, snowmobiling. So it's definitely a sport that as you get into it, you need to learn the safety precautions that you need to take and no one better to help us understand those than Michael at Santiago. So um, why don't each of you just give us a brief introduction when I told you who you are, but uh, so Michael, how long have you been with the Utah Snowmobile Association? Um, I guess I've been indirectly helping him for a couple of years now. Last year I took on the role of being the public lands director because, well, the, the the gentleman that was doing, he retired about four years ago, and there hasn't been anybody take his place since then. And it's an important role, as you and I have discussed on the you know public land side. So I stepped in and have been digging into that never-ending rabbit hole, as you already know. Yeah, there is a constant effort to keep our access open to these areas and to make sure that our national forests, our public lands are open for these types of activities. And that's usually what a public land director does. It's build those relationships with the agencies and with the public and to make sure that everybody's recreating responsibly and safely. And so it's a really important role. We're glad you're there. Absolutely. So Santiago, helicopter pilot, yeah. how many how many flight hours do you have? Uh, I kind of stopped keeping track after okay. like 4,000. That's for the helicopter, so... Yeah, so this is a man who spent thousands of hours in a helicopter, which is kind of what you have to do to become commercially licensed and able to fly passengers. And how long have you been with IHC? Been with IHC now seven years. Um, moved here from Las Vegas. Before that, I was doing EMS in uh, the Las Vegas area, uh, Arizona, New Mexico, and a little bit of California as well for a different company and worked EMS with those guys approximately about six years. Perfect. Well, we're grateful that you're here uh, sharing your experience and wisdom with us. Uh, we hear 
ahead of the show, we were talking about you're getting a new snowmobile yeah. here soon. <laughs> yeah, it showed up. So I'm pretty excited about that. And uh, that's how I met Michael. We were talking at uh, the uh, Davis County Snowmobile Association. Uh, it was their uh, their opening social. Yeah. And he, he joined the club and met there. And he's been interacting with some of the people from the Avalanche Center as well. Uh, but uh, I think you met those guys up at ADS. Yeah. And Backcountry Institute, Al, and those guys. Yep. So, yeah. Yeah, he's, yeah, no, he's Utah's right in. Definitely building out a great infrastructure of institutions that exist to educate people about how to recreate safely in the backcountry. And we're glad to have you be part of the backcountry community on the ground, not just in the air. Yeah. And hope you have a good season. So let's start off this episode. I always like to start off with one of the stories. Okay. Uh, that is what I think people would want to come listen to a show like this is to kind of hear the hairy situations that people get themselves into, how they get themselves out of them. I think they're very educational. And so I asked you, Santiago, to think through some of your experiences and come ready to talk about some of the rescues you've been on. And so let's start with what do you think would be a good one to start with? Well, I think the uh, snowmobile uh, rescue we did last winter up there by Monty would probably be a good one. And, um, you know, we're basically a resource for the search and rescue guys. They've already hit the ground. They're already got a, their mission going. And sometimes it's daylight. Sometimes it's, uh, the location or the terrain when they call us as the secondary resource to come in there and assist. Um, or it's just such a big area that they're trying to cover. Uh, they're a tremendous help to us because they usually already have last known position for them or they have some, a set of coordinates for us to start working a grid. When we get there, we'll start working a grid. I want to say it was sometime in February last year. happened in Monty, and it was a couple lost snowmobilers. We get up there, and as we start searching the area that they tell us, the first group we find are the actual uh, search and rescue guys on their snowmobiles and different vehicles moving into the area, but they were on an opposite canyon of where they wanted us to start our search. Uh, we start, it's nighttime. So, so hold on. For those who don't know, where is the Monty area? So just uh, east of Ogden. Okay. East of uh, uh, Snow Basin. Yeah, so up better in the to... mountains. Above yeah, Ogden. I, I would say north, just northeast of Snow Basin and almost directly east of uh, Powder Mountain. Gotcha. So let's, let's describe the terrain a little bit. Some some of the people who might listen to this won't be familiar with the area. I mean, this is the Wasatch Mountains. Right. Pretty rugged terrain. Getting in there would take, I mean, probably you'd need a pretty high-performance machine. And how remote is it? I mean, how far are people from other roads, civilization? It's pretty remote if you start looking at the lights that are out there. And, you know, especially at night, you can see where the houses are and then where there's no lights. And there's uh, what kind of surprised me that night is there was lots of cabins in the area we were searching. That once we got down low enough where we could see the roads were just completely covered in snow. So that it was not really accessible by anybody who owns those cabins at that time, unless they went in there by a snowmobile. Um, lots of trees, uh, different valleys and uh, draws for them to play in everything looked really fun from the air you know as far as having a good time on a snowmobile there in that area that's for sure all the things that we look for as far as the terrain yeah so this this group it was a was it an individual or a, it was a group of two a group of and, two uh 
I don't know the entire part of the uh, of what led up to it or if they got separated from this larger group. But what happened was is two individuals ended up being uh, lost in that area. And they didn't know if they got stuck, what was going on. But um, so search and rescue was sent out. They had been searching for a while. Then they called us to help assist because they knew they were looking in such a big area. And they had an idea of their last area that they were reported in. So that's where we started looking. And at night, we had good moonlight. So we were able to see fairly well that tons of snowmobile tracks. And we were looking for a large piece of equipment, something that might be moving, a light source. Uh, weren't seeing much of that, but we could see all kinds of tracks. And then they, next thing they told us, search and rescue told us, they're in a canyon. We think they're right below you guys in the trees stuck. All right. So we started making a bunch of passes through that canyon and working our way down, trying to look between the trees, look for any type of light source or somebody trying to signal us and worked our way down. Nothing worked our way back up. Still didn't see anything. And, uh, then we kind of moved that from that canyon over to the other side of it and started searching that area and still wasn't seeing anything. And then they told us, well, they may walk down that canyon, start looking at for them at the bottom of that canyon. So we looked through the bottom of the canyon, made several passes through there. And uh, we were just a couple hundred feet above the ground, just right above the tree lines going through there. Um, still nothing. By then we were starting to get a little concerned ourselves just because our fuel uh, and we'll continue searching, but the fuel at that point was, well, we have to get back, refuel so we can come back. And I think right at that point, we seen them pop out right at the bottom of one of those draws and a couple guys signal us. And then they told us, we think we have some search and rescue guys in there behind them, but they're stuck right now too. They're working their way to them. Uh, can you land? So then we looked for an area to land and found a nice open area by a meadow kind of, or by the stream there, there where we, we thought we could land. We made several attempts, but the wind wasn't in our favor at that point in time. Uh, we even tried a different direction and kind of communicating the search and rescue at that point in time. They, they said, you know what, we're almost to them. You guys confirm their location. We'll get down there and maybe we'll get them in one of those cabins and warm them back up and we'll call you guys if we need you. All right, give us a call. Will be available, and uh, I think search and rescue got them out in the morning. By then, one of the snowcats was able to make it into that area. Um, I think it made me think about from my previous time snowmobiling. What would I have done in that situation, or what could I have done to prevent it or make sure I wasn't in it? And where they were at, where there were so many trees, it was very tough. But I think we could have been able to spot them, possibly get somebody to them a little faster because I'd say we were probably airborne looking for them for at least an hour, if not longer. And that was just our part. Search and rescue had been there for much longer. Yeah. Um, How long does your fuel tank usually last in, environment, in a situation like that? It kind of depends on how far we have to go. If we know we're traveling pretty far, we'll tank up the aircraft and we got about two hours of fuel. If we know we're going to be pretty close to a fuel source and we need to keep it a little bit lighter because we may move into doing a hoist operation with it hour and 15 hour and 30 minutes maybe so we'll always have at least an hour but it kind of varies on on what our mission profile is yeah and i only asked that because if you were on the ground and you, i'm assuming they heard you and knew you were in the area uh you should know that's about how much time you have 
right. with the helicopter before they have to go land. Like it's just nice for people to know what window they have. I think that's important, and it's probably even something I haven't ever considered when we've talked to people about that. Is there is a window there, and it usually has to do with our fuel. We'll come back, but if you can be found quicker, then it's a faster outcome for everybody, for us, for the patient, or the person that's lost, for search and rescue, and everyone else involved. So yeah, that that is pretty valuable information right there. Yeah. So you said you thought through this and the things you'd be doing differently because you also snowmobile yourself. Uh, what could this group have done differently to have made your job a little easier uh, to have probably prevented getting themselves in this situation in the first place? Because, I mean, I'm assuming they're in the trees for a reason. Right. They're, it's fun. You, it's kind of some obstacles. You, there's a lot of times that's where there's untouched. My experience with snowboarding <laughs> is that's where you can find fresh powder. The stuff that's in the clearings gets tracked out pretty quick. So what would you tell people? You know, just thinking of what the worst case scenario is. Are you going to be somewhere where you may have to spend the night? Do you have that equipment to spend the night? Or do you have enough warm equipment to spend the night? Um, A fire source, uh, some food for that period of time, 12 hours, whatever that you may be spending the night there. Um, The fire source or a light source is a big one. Talking lately to all the guys with the avalanche rescues and everybody that's been involved with the search and rescues that I've met here in the last few months, just talking about winter survival, a lot of it, they just keep bringing up a fire, start a fire, learn how to start a fire in wet weather. And uh, even so much where it kind of creates a little bit of a calming effect. You know, once you get that, it's one of your needs, right? I got a heat source, kind of can calm down a little bit start analyzing things in a different from maybe from a different perspective or even a little more calm perspective to come up with more options than you might have had before yeah and so let's also be clear in this case was it that their snowmobile got stuck in the trees and that's why they were stranded or did they run out of gas like what actually i think they were stuck in the trees from what i remember hearing you obviously spent some time trying to find them could they have done a better job of making themselves visible to the aircraft? It sounded like you kind of caught them at the very end. Yeah. Was that a situation where you'd actually flown over where they, where you did oh, eventually I, see them? And I'm they, sure we flew over them several times. And, and, you know, that's it. It was nighttime. We were flying over the top of those trees, and they were tight trees, but we were looking in any open areas that we could. We were trying to follow the snowmobile tracks that drop in there. Um I think we could have found them quicker if we knew, you know, if they would have used the light source. Even like um, one of your guests mentioned a cell phone, a cell phone light, you know, hopefully it's not dead, but a cell phone light, a headlamp, um, the laser pin lights, as long as they're not being pointed directly at the helicopter. Heck, there's even a company out there that's making like these little mini flares that you can shoot up. Uh, Any type of light source, anything that's going to attract attention, a Roman candle. (laughs) i would even say to add to that um if they had some sort of a communication device like an inreach yeah um and they know and more importantly knowing how to use it with pilots and search and rescue just a set of coordinates is really almost all they need if you could get those out he can plug them into his you know the helicopter there and their computer search and rescue can pull it up on their gps information and they can they know exactly where you are. So, I mean, mo- most, uh, it's becoming more and more popular, I would say, these days. A lot of backcountry enthusiasts in general are now carrying a Garmin inReach or a spot. Yeah, um, it so seems can, like in a, especially with the sport of snowmobiling, 
like if you get stuck, I mean, we've talked about episodes where people get stuck in the desert. You're probably going to survive a night in the desert in the summer in Utah. I mean, there are conditions that could cause that not to be the case. Right. But surviving a winter in the mountains in Utah is a very different scenario. And so I would say that the having that satellite communication device probably increases in, in importance, uh, should be considered essential gear if you're really getting out into the backcountry snowmobiling by yourself or in a very small like if you're in a bigger group that also that's one of the things we've emphasized in this is a lot of times people don't think about joining a club or an association but getting out and learning how to enjoy the sport as part of an organized group is a good way to learn how to be responsible and be out there with a lot of other people who can help you if something goes wrong um but yeah so that's a good one and i mean the thing that sticks out to me there though still just the trees like you've got to get somewhere where you're visible and let that person in the helicopter find you. Yeah. And I think because of that location that they were in, it, was, it took them a while. That was tough. It was all, it was pretty yeah. thick trees through that area. So they were working their way down. And I think they did their best they could as far as working their way down. And we can even see, uh, we've seen where search and rescue entered. But once they started working that area, we kind of lost track of those guys too. And uh, yeah, it was a tough spot. It was definitely a tough spot, and it was a good outcome because they got down there to where the cabins were. We relayed to search and rescue. Search and rescue was there on their way there, and then I checked in on the morning, in the morning to see if they still needed us. And they said, "No, nah, you know, we're going to hunker down for the uh, rest of the day. We got some uh, firewood here in this cabin. We were inside the cabin, and uh, you know, snow cats on the way. So they got them out. It was a good outcome because of that." Yeah. So in a situation like that, I am kind of curious, do the people getting rescued have to pay the bill for the helicopter time? You know what? That's a great question because I, I think that a lot of people are concerned about that yeah. and maybe a little hesitant of calling search and rescue in case a helicopter gets used. And we, as far as a search and rescue, it's just something that IHC Lifelike basically does um, for the community. There's nothing involved if we have to put that person inside the helicopter and actually transport them for a medical issue then yes but other than a for a search no yeah and it potentially gets billed out to the insurance i know that came up with our the show we did with the guys in emory county that they've run into issues where people didn't want to call search and rescue because they didn't know what the cost would be they felt like they would be fine without it and, and that's why i like bringing that up is for people to understand that don't let the cost consideration be the thing that prevents you from making that call or putting out the call for help uh, most things will get sorted out with an insurance company or communities will have the resources but that doesn't mean you should be reckless you should also right. do everything you can to take precautions and be safe and not have to burden the search and rescue departments uh, how many flights do you usually get called out on during a snowmobile season? Well, they've already started, you know. Yeah. <laughs> we're already started we're with middle of December. And, yeah. Wow. Some of them have already started. And, uh, you know, some of them are the tourists that uh, go up in the Uintas or even are guided. And uh, just people that want to go out and enjoy the snow or have never done it before. And, you know, accidents do happen. So it'll start. Like I said, it's already started there, unfortunately. This year, I haven't started it. I haven't started uh, or done a flight for that, but uh, I know that we've had one or two already this season. And I ask that just because 
the search and rescue teams on the ground many times are volunteer. Right. And there's definitely been an increase in recreation use around Utah. I know it's just exploded. And I don't know that the number of search and rescue volunteers has exploded in sync with the use. And so that's another reason why we just want people to learn these safety skills. The There are resources there. We do want you to call if you need them, but also understand that uh, the guys I've talked to that are in search and rescue have just said that the number of rescues they've been on is steadily increasing. Most of them are doing it as volunteers, and you could find yourself in a situation where the resources are stretched thin, and with that many people out in the backcountry is what we're seeing in Utah nowadays. It just works to your benefit to know the precautions and to be safe. Right. Um, so let's... Let's move on. Like, I had you think through a couple of experiences. What are some of the other ones right. you've been on? That so kind of leading up to, and maybe um, to add to that first story, uh, one of the first ones that I did search and rescue. It happened to be when I was still working for a different company down in Arizona, and uh, this one's not snowmobile related, but it was a good outcome that could have been much worse. We got called. Uh, there was a. We heard that there was a four wheeler that uh, had trapped the driver underneath, and possibly had a broken leg. And they gave us some coordinates out in the desert. So late at night, same thing. Search and rescue was in route. Uh, when we got there, uh, we were probably about maybe thirty miles from the uh, location, and talking to search and rescue at that point and they said well they've they've started a campfire so look for a light source i was like oh great this is fantastic because 30 miles away with the night vision goggles you'll pick up any light source there is out there yeah and that's something that people should know is the helicopter pilots do have the night vision capability and so that's why you've already mentioned the light sources before that that yeah. just gets magnified and that's why even a little laser pen or something could be what makes or breaks a search Exactly. Because you guys are, it's that one thing that will stand out. Even if there's a, you know, artificial lights out there, as far as lights uh, from houses or vehicles, you can always tell the moving lights, but it narrows that distance or it narrows what we have to look for. Like it, that night was a perfect example because there was three lights on that mountain ridge where the coordinates were. And we were still within 30 miles from it or from about 30 miles from it. And we knew, all right, let's go to number one, number two, and number three. And sure enough, that's how we kind of picked it off. Went number one. It wasn't the people we were looking for. It was somebody else enjoying a nice campfire. <laughs> Went to number two. Not the one either. Went to number three. And all of a sudden, it's, everybody's waving. And you could definitely see the four-wheeler and everything else. And it made it so much easier to get the spot, find them. And that one, from the time we launched to finding her, was probably, I'm going to say about 15 minutes, you know, relate it to uh, search and rescue. We tried landing in there, but the cactus, it was the giant cactus that were there and we weren't able to land the helicopter in there. So it's relayed the coordinates to search and rescue. They made it up the hill right to her and um, got her uh, loaded up, brought her down to where we uh, could land the helicopter. And then we picked her up and uh, she ended up, she did have a broken leg. So we had to fly her to Phoenix. Okay. Yeah, no, that's uh, when I was talking to the guys in Emory County, they have a goal to beat the helicopter to the scene. Oh, of course. And, <laughs> you know, and, the, and they're so the they'll get on their dirt bikes and try and beat. But Emory County's big. Yeah. And they're getting into the Santa Fe swell, and that could. So you guys do have 
you do have a opportunity to still show up and be the first <laughs> ones there. Uh, but I, I've only brought that up because you beat them that time and found yeah. the person. But it's good for people to know that when you guys are out there, that there is that kind of competitive, we are going to get to these people as fast as we can and help them. And you're coming with the cavalry and all kinds of resources and equipment, helicopters. These guys have dirt bikes and other things that they'll, they know the terrain because they've been on so many of these rescues. And if you've given them the ability to find you, they'll find you. So, so that brings up a quick question though, about the, you meant, you mentioned the laser pen. I know some of those can be damaging if you get one directly in your eye. So I think it might be kind of important real quick, just to clarify, is, is that something yeah, probably not. I would probably wouldn't pack that in my bag for a source. Yeah, I agree. I think the I point was that like, that light yeah. source is significant if, enough that, if, but like a cell phone, a, any anything that creates light, I think that's kind of why we bring up the laser pen is that even something like that can be. Yeah. Well, and to kind of give you an idea, the the light source. So, uh, how good those goggles work? Um, flying in that same area used to fly back and forth. Uh, over one of the lakes all the time or just on the side of the lake there and there was always these lights that would kind of shine just sitting there flashing and I'd get low try to figure out what it was like what's going on down there I don't know why anything is by this lake out here in the middle of the desert and uh couldn't figure it out they always had me curious what what's going on down there so one day I uh had uh, the opportunity to kind of land there at night close to one of those areas. So I landed and walked over and it was an aluminum pop can that was super shiny and it was picking up the strobes from the helicopter. (laughs) That just picking up the strobes from the helicopters we fly by was causing that flashing and it was like, wow, that's all it took was a reflective material like that, you know, to pick up our lights really. Yeah, so uh, let's talk about gear for a minute. I know that Department of Natural Resources, I've seen on their Instagram feed, they have some checklists. And I know that there's sort of a campaign of making sure you have everything you need in a tunnel bag. Some people might not know what a tunnel bag is. So why don't you explain some of the things you're out as part of the Utah Snowmobile Association. You're educating a lot of new users, a lot of clubs. Uh, So what are some of the things you're telling people? This is what you got to have. This is what a prepared sled looks like in a prepared user sure um well i think to to elaborate on what a tunnel bag is it's it's a bag that mounts on the back end of the snowmobile on what's referred to as the tunnel that's just part of the chassis of a snowmobile um it it mounts on there it's a bag it's waterproof good ones are waterproof with plenty of storage room and we you know, like uh, through the Snowmobile Association, we have a day where we, we go out and we kind of give, as we spoke before the program, kind of a 35,000 foot view of how important it is to be prepared snowmobiling in the backcountry. Um, and part of that is what are you packing in your tunnel bag? I mean, I can tell you right now, when I first started snowmobiling, I was so naive and unaware. The only thing I had in there was protein bars and some water. I mean, I had nothing else. Bear Grylls, did you have a knife? <laughs> I didn't even have a knife. So uh, Santiago said, are you prepared to spend the night if something goes bad? You break down, somebody's hurt, and the visibility drops, and they can't get a helicopter to you. So you're working on trying to get search and rescue to you. Are you prepared to stay overnight? One of the most important things, as Santiago touched on, is building a fire. Do you have 
resources in your tunnel bag that are hopefully waterproof to start a fire. And if you do, do you know how to use that stuff to start the fire? That's probably the biggest thing. And I, I liked how he compared that to, you know, it, it relaxes you. It opens up your field of view. You're, you know, you don't have that tunnel vision where panic starts setting in and you start wondering what you're going to do. Well, if you're warm and comfortable, then you can start thinking things through. You can take your time and figure it out. Um, do you have the clothing, extra clothing? So extra. when you meet with these groups, how many of them have already like, oh, yeah, I already know about the fire thing. You're telling us stuff we already know. Or are most people like, you know what? I didn't think about that. Well, it's, I would say... Probably about a quarter of them do, three quarters of them or more don't. Um, and the ones that do have it, it's interesting watching because I've, I've, I've volunteered and helped out other, uh, like the Backcountry Institute, when they teach their avalanche awareness. Part of their day, um, one of their stations, if you will, when they're not only teaching avalanche education is fire building. You know, can you start, people can't even start a fire. It's they don't know where to go to get maybe some dry wood or find a good spot to to uh, start one where there's some dry wood, cut it and then have a source to start to start it. Yeah, I think they're just unaware. They just don't realize, oh, wow, yeah, this could happen and I need to know this. But, yeah, there's a number of people that were I think it was an eye opening experience for them. Let's put it that way. And, you know, and add to, to add to that, like I said, dry clothing, have an extra dry clothing, uh, more clothing. Because when you're not moving, you're just kind of hanging out, staying there. You, you get, you're going to get cold. So it's important to have more clothing, food, whether that's, you know, extra protein bars, water. Water, I think a lot of people don't realize getting dehydrated, you get cold. So staying hydrated by drinking water helps you stay warm. You know, so we, we talk about all those things briefly. And that's in an attempt to get everybody to go take a more formal safety course or avalanche awareness course, which goes over a lot of that stuff. Yeah. So uh, Santiago, have you ever been on a, on an avalanche recovery? Well, we get called for them. Yeah. We get called for them. And when we get called, search and rescue has already been called. Uh, a lot of times it does. That's what the, the reality of it is, is if the helicopter shows up, most of the time it is a recovery. Yeah. You know, um, Intermountain has the, uh, giant transceiver so we can also pick up the beacons but by the time we get there most of the time it's already turned into a rescue or a recovery at that point it's not really a rescue i mean yeah and those are probably some of the most unfortunate incidents that can happen in the backcountry and they are common i I mean I, i imagine have you seen like a notable increase or is it set like what is your perception on how common this avalanche risk is Seems like I hear of at least one or two high-profile stories in Utah's mountains at least every right. year. Um, you know what? As far as I've only been here in Utah for seven years, um, we get called probably maybe once a year for one, if if that. Um, I think people are much more educated on it and are more willing to get those uh, the, the beacons and train with them and get that awareness so I'm hoping that it doesn't, it's not happening, that it hasn't rise or it been a uh, steady rise in that, that it, we're working on getting those numbers down. And I think that's something that the Avalanche Institute's actually said as well, uh, that those numbers have been going down. And, you know, going back to like what Michael was talking about, that gear is like, it's the same thing as the Avalanche transceiver. For years, I think a lot of us carried it 
And uh, I was like, yeah, I'm being safe. Well, have you ever practiced with it? Right. And uh, no, you know, I haven't. And I think that's even starting that fire. Do you have the things to start it? Okay. Have you ever done it when it's wet and cold? Practice. You know, even when the guys just stop for lunch, make it into like a little game to start that. Practice with it. Try it out. Try different methods, different people trying it out and just passing that word along. Um, the inreach, like Michael said, I seen that thing. And it was like, wow, that's great. That was like one of the first things I got. I've been out of snowmobiling for 20 years and I seen how valuable that would be. And it was the first thing I, I purchased and like took a trip out of town this week and I'm sending a message to my daughter, making sure I know how to use it, you know, and making sure that she's getting the response. And it's like, okay, all right. I feel good about like knowing how to use this thing. So yeah, well, they definitely have changed the game on making that a lot more likely that if a search and rescue incident just becomes an incident and not a catastrophe. And they, and a lot of times those even come with the insurance where you pay a hundred bucks a year and they'll pay for the search and rescue to happen in Utah. The state of Utah has an insurance product where if you go into the back country, I think you pay 35 bucks a year. And as long as you've paid that insurance, they'll cover any costs that the, that are incurred by the government. Um, as part of the search and the rescue. So I think we maybe have about 10 more minutes, give or take. And we like these episodes to be about 40 minutes. Um, any other of the experiences that you've thought of, of times where you've been out and... Yeah, the uh, there was one um, up in the Uintas two years ago. And that one, snowmobilers, middle of winter, we took off. Uh, and that one we took off from the uh, Murray uh, hospital and we got to the area pretty quick we found search and rescue up there in their snowmobiles pretty quick and then they gave us the coordinates to start looking and there were so many tracks we were looking all over um looking all over <laughs> and just kind of following the tracks around trying to see where they were at going off of uh the information the communication we had with search and rescue and uh we ended up finding the sleds and they had there was nobody around them so relayed that back to search and rescue and then it turns into a bigger search uh the sleds can be found or the equipment the four-wheelers the motorcycles find them pretty quick but when people start wandering away from them and they wander away for different reasons i get it you know didn't have a cell phone uh service in that area i'm going to get to a higher peak or i knew i know i had it back here but after that get back to where that equipment is because it's always easier to spot from the air than anything else and uh that one thankfully we found the people uh a couple other snowmobilers were close enough uh that they heard them started moving towards them search and rescue came up and uh was there in no time and there was no injuries so there was no more need for us and good outcome but yeah could have been quicker yeah so i like that one because I mean, you watch some of these TV shows like Bear Grylls will tell you, you got to move, you got to get down to where you'll find a road. Like there kind of is some popular conception out there that you have to actively facilitate your rescue. How would these people have known they were being searched for in that case? The reason I'm asking that is like, how do you kind of, how can you make that value judgment when you're in a position where you're kind of nervous, you're your monkey brain's kicking in or your lizard brain to try and survive the situation. And 
you go off of previous experiences you've seen tv show like how do you know when is it the best decision to stay with the machinery when is it the best decision to go striking off into the wilderness like how would they have known that you guys were looking for them to stay with their sled you know if they if they had a plan and uh, i know like before we got into the inreach and all that there was always you know letting family or friends know where you went so this is and I give my friends and family a very wide, wide air, uh, time period before they call search and rescue because I don't want to be the one that uh, has search and rescue looking for me. So I usually add a couple hours to it myself. But if they uh, told their family, hey, we're going to be back by 10 p.m. If you haven't heard from us and it's already 10, after 10 p.m. and you see helicopters in the sky, then they're probably looking for you. Yeah, right? but if you're telling your family 10 p.m. As long as you are. Then right? you better probably be prepared to spend the night because if that's when the rescue's starting it's not the best time to start a rescue right yeah and 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 it's one of the things i like to do is when i go snowmobiling i'll usually call up a friend or text a friend that's that i snowmobile with that may not be going with me that day and just tell them where i'm going this is where we're going riding if you haven't heard from me by seven o'clock start looking into it please and then what hopefully all goes well you get out of there you call them Okay, I'm out, dude. You know, everything's good. Or he'll start shooting texts to you. Hey, are you are you out? Are you off the mountain? Everything all right? You, oh, yeah, I forgot to text you. Sorry, man. You know, I mean, that's that's one avenue. And and, and to, going back to the inreach, not only is it a very essential or it can be very helpful to get help to you, it can also kind of let people know you're okay. Right. For example, uh, I had some buddies a few years ago. They got stuck overnight. They just got down into a canyon. It got dark and they weren't making it out that night. They were exhausted, wet. So they stopped. They had everything that they needed, build a big fire. And on their inreach, they texted out to all their loved ones and everybody that really needed to know, we're good. Don't send out search and rescue. Everything is fine. We're good. We'll see you in the morning. And that right there shut down the whole, you know, if their wives and whoever else getting panicked and calling search and rescue and sending them out. So that communication right there was, was valuable and not, you know, putting a, a SAR team at risk for a group of people that were okay. Yeah. And I've also heard that same thing from like the guys in Emory County. They said, if you have an inreach, you can let us know if somebody's broken a leg, if we right. know that going in, that means we go in a lot more prepared and ready to treat that person and know what we're getting into and how much resources we need where initially we go in kind of bring in a pretty good mix of resources, but the first priority is to find them and to determine that situation. And so any information you can give a search and rescue team is going to help the success of that rescue mission. And so again, another great reason to have an inreach or something with that capability. It has the capability of being a game changer for so many people and still enjoy what they love doing. You know, they can get a hold of family, let family know everything's good. Uh, or I'm running a little bit late or get hold of search and rescue and let them know I need medical help. I'm lost, whatever it may be. Uh, but just a complete game changer. Uh, so Mike, where can people like, I always advocate that people join an organization. Like it never hurts. You'll always get something out of it. Um, Utah Snowmobile Association, where do they find you? Uh, you can find us on the internet, just Utah under the Utah Snowmobile Association. I can't remember the exact web identifier without just looking Google at it. it. Yeah, just Google it. Um, you can start there. Another great place to start is uh, the Utah Avalanche Center. 
they actually have a number of great resources online. The Know Before You Go program, which is free, you can get online, and that's a gives you a really good introduction to avalanche awareness and backcountry safety right there. And then take a formalized course, some sort of on-the-snow 101 level one through a local provider here in, here in Utah, Backcountry Institute or ARI, um, somebody like that. More they, they offer more motorized specific courses, and they're going to go over all that stuff. Um, one thing to mention, too, is you, you, when we were talking about the tunnel bag earlier is first aid making sure you have proper first aid and know how to use it. Cause even in a bad day, if, if something happens and somebody ends up saying a burial, you, you know how to use your beak and probe and shovel. Okay. You dug them out here. They are, they're fine, but they're, they could be hurt pretty bad. You know, it's almost like the work begins there. Are you capable of stabilizing them and keeping them warm and safe? And do some until of these the programs with like the Utah avalanche center I'm sorry? teach you that first aid? Um, no, they don't have, I, I don't, they, they, it, I guess, uh, basic, very basic. I would say if you want to get more in depth, you can go take a, a wilderness first aid course or something like that. But I mean, even get online, there's online resources to help you learn a first, just, just basic first aid. You know, if you go buy a, a first aid kit from any outdoor recreation store, just knowing what's in it and how to use it and, you know, maybe yeah. how to get creative and and make a splint or something like that to stabilize a, a busted femur, a leg, things like that. Well, great. Well, I think that's a good, good episode here. I appreciate uh, Santiago for being here and sharing the perspective of the helicopter pilots. Thanks uh, for having me You're here. our first helicopter yeah. pilot. We've Every guest we've had so far has talked about working with the helicopters, so it's good to get your perspective. And Mike, we're grateful to have you here to share the resources that Utah Snowmobile Association is bringing to the table to help create a responsible culture of enjoying this awesome sport, kind of one of the best sports ever invented. Yeah. Um, I, I would say for, for new people too, don't be afraid to ask questions. If you move to Salt Lake, you're new to the town, you're new to the area, you want to get into snowmobiling or backcountry skiing and stuff like that, and you've never done it and you don't know anybody who's doing it, definitely get online and find a club that can help you out. Or if you know somebody that's in the sport, ask questions and, and get dialed in before you go out. As Santiago touched on earlier, some of the some of the searches it sounds like they've been out on already on already are tourists and new people wanting to join the enjoy the snow, but they're just unaware of how vulnerable they really are. Yeah. yeah. And the machines do give you a sense of confidence or capability that might exaggerate or mask the vulnerability in some regard. Absolutely. Even the clothing. I mean, the clothing they make for backcountry recreation, snowmobile, snowmobiles especially is if you, if you buy top of the line clothing, it's awesome. It keeps you warm, you know, and it I, that could give you a sense of false security. So just have extra stuff. Well, good. Well, I want to wrap up just by inviting everybody to subscribe to Last Known Position. This is our fourth episode, and we will be producing several more of these as we continue to find good guests. And I also want to extend the invitation. If you know somebody who is part of a search and rescue team or a volunteer or a professional and would be a good guest for this show, we are always looking for new guests to join us and share their experiences and use those experiences to educate the outdoor recreation community. So uh, go to sharetrails.org slash last known position is where this show is located and you can find the form to sign up to be a guest and so appreciate you guys being here and be safe out there and go have fun and have a good winter 
All right. Thanks. Thank you.